This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The Centralia Tragedy, Part 1. Seeing the forest for the trees. The tallest known tree in the world is a coastal redwood named Hyperion, after one of the twelve titans of Greek mythology. Hyperion means he who walks on high, or the god above, and the California redwood certainly fits the bill. The tree is 380 feet tall, about the length of a football field or an aircraft carrier, and scientists estimate its age to be between 600 and 1,000 years old. In theory, its location is secret to protect it from damage, accidental or otherwise, but humans, being the curious and destructive little beasts that we are, you can find it with a bit of digging online. Just recently, in July of 2022, the National Park Service announced that it was closing the section of Redwood National Park where Hyperion resides, citing damage done by hikers who bushwhacked their way into the forest, destroying the protective ferns at the tree's base, damaging the lower trunk and leaving trash and human waste at the site. But the $5,000 fine and six months jail time you can earn for visiting Hyperion may not even be your biggest worry. It's a very dangerous journey, completely off-trail in an area with no cellular coverage and very spotty GPS. In the wild rainforests of the Pacific Northwest, a minor injury or wrong turn can mean death. And besides, as the National Park Service said in its announcement, Hyperion isn't even the most impressive tree you can find in Redwood National Park. Compared to others that are accessible via designated trails, its trunk is small, and you can't appreciate the full height of Hyperion from the ground of the dense forest. But still, it's the biggest. Those with a mind for conquest may not care much for the protective, elevated platform leading to the Grove of Titans trail. Too manicured, too safe, too tame. A tourist destination can hardly satisfy the desire to dominate. Trees grow taller in the Pacific Northwest of North America than just about anywhere else in the world. Factors like the climate and richness of the soil explain why. Temperatures consistently between 40 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit allow the trees to be more efficient at moving water up through the tall trunks and keeping the pores of their leaves open to carbon dioxide. The dampness helps as well. Between the frequent rain and near-constant fog, the redwoods, firs, and ashes have never known thirst. When white settlers first came to the area, they were stunned by the sheer enormity and lush green of the forests. They had never seen anything like it. Indigenous people had utilized the forests for thousands of years to build homes and implements and vessels for traveling the region's many waterways. But of course, the European conquerors had more profitable uses in mind. In 1825, the fur-trading Hudson's Bay Company moved its headquarters to Fort Vancouver and used the off-season when sea otter couldn't be hunted to develop a timber harvesting enterprise, which quickly became as profitable as fur pelts. Throughout the gold rush of the 1840s to 1880s, lumber production was a key facet of the economy in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. But the forests were unimaginably dense, and transporting wood through the thick underbrush was difficult, dangerous, and expensive. The same went for moving lumber across regions, but that would change with the rise of the railroad, 
and business continued to boom for the northwestern lumber industry well into the 20th century. And where there is lumber to be harvested, there are lumberjacks to harvest. The life of a lumberjack was brutal, isolating, incredibly dangerous, and underpaid. They were highly transient and often functionally homeless. It's difficult to settle down and plant roots when your work requires you to be highly mobile, trudging from site to site in search of work. In the earlier days of the Northwest lumber industry, many lumberjacks were paid well and were well-treated, given decent lodgings and access to medical care. But as more and more laborers moved westward, and the timber trade grew increasingly powerful and monopolized, the conditions of lumberjack laborers degraded. Wages got skimpier, lodgings dirtier and less hygienic, and medical care, in an incredibly dangerous field, mind you, grew scant. Harvesting timber had always been a difficult and hazardous job, but as the relative pay decreased and the conditions worsened, discontent brewed. By the turn of the century, dirty tactics like forcing lumberjacks to pay just for access to work sites or falsely advertising positions so as to get a glut of applicants and thus a more exploitable workforce were common. And as we have seen time and again, where there is a disgruntled workforce, labor organization is not far behind. The story of the Centralia tragedy, in which six people were killed and seven jailed for their deaths, is a microcosm of the battle between the monopolized lumber industry titans and the organizing efforts of the men who made their riches possible. Having taken place slap in the middle of the post-World War I Red Scare, it's also a microcosm of the national debate on patriotism, Bolshevism, and the limits of civil liberties like freedom of expression, the right to assemble, and protection from search and seizure. The Centralia tragedy isn't a grand romantic narrative that makes it into high school textbooks. There aren't any movies about its heroes or villains, and most people today have never heard of it. And it's for precisely those reasons that it makes for a compelling tale. It reminds us of the mundanity of these conflicts, the fact that they happen in sleepy towns as well as big metropolises, that the destruction of a small union hall could lead to a national uproar that hamstrung union efforts for a decade. Centralia, Washington is a city of 18,000, located about halfway between Portland and Seattle. This placement between two of the region's largest cities has influenced Centralia's economy and character since its founding, though it was actually named Centralia because of its location halfway between Kalama and Tacoma, Washington. The area was first settled in 1850 by James and Anna Cochran, with their adopted son, George Washington. No relation, as far as I can tell. George was a free black man, and when the Missouri Compromise was passed in 1850, they fled their home for fear that George would be enslaved. They forged the Oregon Trail and eventually claimed the plot of land at the confluence of the Chehalis and Skookumchuck Rivers in the Washington Territory, which placed no restrictions on black people owning land. In 1886, the town of Centralia, Washington was incorporated by the only black person to have founded a town in the Pacific Northwest. He was beloved by his fellow townsfolk, and when he died in 1905, the entire town shut down, and his funeral was attended by 5,000 people. Over the years, Centralia boomed and busted in response to various economic changes, as did so much of the western frontier. A railroad town, then a coal town, a lumber town, 
and eventually a sort of passing through town with the building of Interstate 5, today it's sustained by coal mining, regional distribution, and its touristy historic downtown district. By 1910, Centralia was a nicely developed city of about 7,500, with a sewage system and paved and lighted streets and concrete sidewalks. The wooden-framed houses had been replaced with brick and stone. It was a center for commerce, thanks to the railroad, the rivers, and the nearby extractive industries. Nearly 60 trains passed through Centralia each day. Its position at the intersection of various rails, roads, and waterways earned it the nickname Hub City. Its inhabitants were largely businessmen, petty bourgeois shopkeepers, and workers for the various manufacturing and mining operations. As one writer derisively described Centralia, the kind of city smug people show their friends with pride from the rose-scented tranquility of a Super 6 in passage, as sinister and cowardly as she is pretty. That writer was Ralph Chaplin, an American labor activist with the industrial workers of the world. He was a poet and an artist, and you might know some of his work. The song Solidarity Forever, sung to the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, or the black cat logo used by anarcho-syndicalists, with the back arched and fur raised. Chaplin is a fascinating character in his own right. He was just seven when he saw a worker killed at the 1894 Pullman strike in Chicago. He served four years in prison for violating the Espionage Act. He wrote a lot, books, poetry, essays, and pamphlets. But one of his pamphlets will be center stage in this series. The Centralia Conspiracy was written just months after the Centralia tragedy and was the first long-form treatment of the incident written after its occurrence. Chaplin is not a reliable witness. He wasn't even a witness. The pamphlet isn't an accurate historical document, and it isn't meant to be. It's propaganda. Very good propaganda. Fortunately, there is no shortage of original primary documents for this topic and plenty of modern analytic treatments as well particularly the work of Tom Copeland, from whom I draw heavily. But you can expect to hear a lot more from Ralph Chaplin because I really like him, and I think you will too. Now, the industrial workers of the world, a.k.a. the IWW, a.k.a. the Wobblies, are at the heart of this tale. The IWW is probably the most radical approach to unionism, much more revolutionary and aggressive than other craft unions or union alliances like the American Federation of Labor. Wobblies advocate for one big union, an approach to organizing that unites all workers across trades and industries against the entire apparatus of wage labor and capitalism. Anybody can join the IWW, regardless of workplace or other union affiliation, In a time of extreme racism, sexism, and xenophobia, the IWW welcomed anyone who earned a wage, a very radical position at the time. Initiation fees and dues were low, which made it easy for women and immigrants who were at the bottom rung of the pay scale to join. Today, it's most commonly associated with anarchists, but the tradition draws from all over the left. It was founded by some of the most important names in American labor history. Lucy Parsons and Mother Jones, Eugene Debs and James Connolly. The concern of the Wobblies was, and is, that the model of craft unionism and the AFL were dividing, not uniting, the working class. Rather than organizing for incremental improvements in wages and working hours, Wobblies explicitly seek the complete abolition of the capitalist and wage labor systems. 
Certainly, the IWW's numbers and ability to instigate a strike were a threat to the established order, but even more dangerous were the ideas it was putting into the heads of working people. One thing the Wobblies were great at was finding and infiltrating industries where no successful union effort was underway, and the forests of the Pacific Northwest were ripe for organizing. See, unlike all of those respectable workers in Centralia who toiled in sawmills and bottling facilities and machine shops, lumberjacks were generally persona non grata in urban areas. They were viewed as shiftless troublemakers, unmarried, unmoored, prone to drinking and gambling and possibly skipping out on the bill. Timber beasts, they were called, and they were regularly run out of town during those months when the weather turned. The lumber work dried up in the deluge of rain and the men were forced out of their lodges in the woods. These timber beasts were considered an entirely different order of labor, and they were treated as such. Chaplin gives a wonderfully romantic description of the difference between the lumberjack, what he calls a casual worker, and the factory worker or other urban wage laborer. He writes, A casual worker is the finished product of modern capitalism. He is the perfect proletarian type, possessionless, homeless, rebellious. The years of degradation and struggle he has endured in the woods have not failed to leave their mark upon him. But he is generous to a fault and has all the qualities Lincoln and Whitman loved in men. Chaplin goes on to say, Being constantly close to the great green heart of nature, he acquires the dignity and independence of the savage rather than the passive and unresisting submission of the factory worker. The fact that he is free from family ties tends to make him ready for an industrial frolic or fight at any time. He feels, in a way, that the woods belong to him and develops a contempt for the unseen and unknown employers who kindly permit him to enrich them with his labor. He is constantly reminded of the glaring absurdity of the private ownership of natural resources. Instinctively, he becomes a rebel against the injustice and contradictions of capitalist society. Chaplin's account isn't exactly a sales pitch to the business leaders of a city to let the lumberjacks come on in and rest a while. And of course, it isn't meant to be. It's meant to be agitating, meant to stir up the feelings of the casual workers he's writing about and urge them to join the fight, to join the union. But organizing lumber workers was not going to be easy. By the early 1900s, the industry, and practically the region, was ruled by the Weyerhaeuser Lumber Trust and its partners. Friedrich Weyerhaeuser was the eighth richest American in history, and the company he left behind is the largest private owner of Timberland in the U.S. to this very day. The business class of the logging industry was desperate to keep unions out of their hair, and often resorted to mob violence to accomplish their aims. The first major clash between workers and their bosses in the Centralia area took place in 1912 in Aberdeen, when sawmill workers went on strike, demanding a daily wage of $2.50. Earlier that year, Wobblies had teamed up with local socialists to get a municipal law banning left-wing political speeches overturned, and throughout 1912, the IWW established local chapters and hosted meetings and lectures. The backlash to the Aberdeen strike, 
and the general strike that started to roil throughout the region was brutal. Picketers were arrested, and the wives with babies in their arms who took their places had the fire hoses turned on them. Men were badly beaten, driven out of town and threatened with lynching if they returned. With support from longshoremen, shingle weavers, electrical workers, and others, the strikes shut down much of the region's industry. And despite the violent suppression they faced, workers eventually won their $2.50 daily wage. But 1912 was just the beginning. The industrialists were in for a long and bloody fight. The more workers won, the harsher the response from industry interests became. By 1916, tensions had reached a fever pitch with the Everett Massacre, one of many historical events that earned the title Bloody Sunday. IWW organizers arrived in Everett to support a five-month-long strike in the city and were met with hostile local authorities and vigilantes in the pay of business owners who beat them with axe handles and ran them out of town. Hundreds of Wobblies left Seattle by boat to meet the mob in Everett and defend the strikers. The vigilantes met the Union men at the docks, and a shootout ensued. Five Wobblies and two vigilantes were killed, and nearly 50 people were wounded. The two vigilantes were killed by friendly fire. The IWW members didn't mortally wound anyone in Everett, and in fact, most of them were unarmed, as was customary for the Wobblies. Nonetheless, 74 Union men were arrested for the massacre, though the charges were all eventually dropped. Throughout the 1910s and into World War I, lumber industry workers made greater and greater gains. Wobblies were fond of the -the on-the-job strike, with employees slowing down production by feigning ignorance about work tasks, diligently following safety regulations—imagine that—and simply leaving at the end of an eight-hour day. The tactic had many benefits. Scabs couldn't take the place of workers, and they could continue to earn wages. Once World War I hit, the nation was in desperate need of timber for warships, planes, and barracks, and the surplus of labor that had contributed to the dismal conditions of lumber workers took a turn. Now, labor was in short supply, and workers could make greater demands on their employers. The strikes and slowdowns of the prior years were felt much more keenly. And now, Uncle Sam was feeling the pinch, too. In February of 1917, the Washington state legislature decided that they had had enough of the disquiet caused by the IWW and their ilk, and passed the Criminal Syndicalism Act. Idaho had just signed into law their own Criminal Syndicalism Act, and soon others would follow. By the end of the war, more than half of the states had passed criminal syndicalism laws, some of which are on the books to this day. The Washington legislature defined criminal syndicalism as the doctrine which advocates crime, sabotage, violence, or other unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform. The law made it illegal to advocate for these ill-defined methods of terrorism in any way, and was so broad that many considered it a direct violation of the Constitution. It barred anyone from speaking about, writing about, printing, publishing, distributing, or teaching about anything that could be considered unlawful methods for winning better working conditions. It was clearly targeted at unions, and specifically at the IWW. And as you might imagine, what constituted unlawful methods was very flexible depending on who was enforcing the law and against whom. 
The law was vetoed by the governor of Washington, but eventually passed over the governor's veto in January of 1919. The punishment for criminal syndicalism was a fine of up to $5,000, $115,000 in today's money, and up to 10 years in prison. But there was another tool in the back pocket of the U.S. government and the wealthy lumbermen of the region, the appeal to patriotism. The IWW and its aggressive strike tactics were painted as the height of anti-American activity, particularly given their stated opposition to entry into World War I. As strikes carried on into 1917, despite the lumber-hungry wartime economy, the government needed creative approaches to keep up production. One was to simply draft men into army units devoted to logging. Another was to fight fire with fire, bringing in their own union that was clumsily named the Loyal Legion of Loggers and Lumbermen, or 4L. A colonel named Bryce Disk was sent to the Pacific Northwest to investigate the lagging lumber production, and what he found was alarming. The narrative that the singular driving force behind the strikes and slowdowns was radical IWW indoctrination was discredited once it became clear to the federal investigators that employers were using wartime hysteria as a tool to boost profits and squash all unionism, not just the IWW. This wasn't a battle of ideas. It was a battle over mattresses and porridge and privies. The lodgings in the lumber camps were abhorrent. Many were built like tunnels called muzzle loaders because of the one-way entrance and narrow profile. Men had to crawl through the lodges into their bunks with so little room they could not stand. The bunks were built one on top of another and rarely had mattresses. Men carried their own blankets from site to site, and the near-constant rain left everything wet and cold, the scent of sweat mixing with mildew. The bunks were infested with vermin, rats and lice, and many of the camps had no facilities for men to wash themselves or their clothes. Where there were outhouses, and oftentimes there weren't, they might be a hundred yards away, requiring men to tramp through the wet brush of the forest. Some, naturally, were unwilling to do so after toiling all day and left their waste closer to the camp, buried in shallow, wet holes. You can imagine the smell. The food was abysmal. The pay was poor, and men were forced to pay a monthly hospital fee for non-existent medical services. They worked 10, 11, and sometimes 12 hours a day, trudging back to the campsite for lunch when they could, and skipping lunch altogether when the foreman decided there was too much work to be done. They worked no matter the weather, climbing the monstrous Sitka spruces in freezing rain. The logging sites themselves were dangerously understaffed, and injuries and even fatalities were common. Colonel Disk remarked at the time, We treated captured Moros better in the Philippines during a war. 4L wasn't meant to be a proper union, more like a patriotic organization, according to Disk. Its premise was the exact opposite of the IWW, which you can easily deduce by the name, loggers and lumbermen, i.e. lumberjacks, and the men who profit from their labor. It was founded on the principle of mutuality of interest between employer and employee. But it did improve the conditions in the lumber camps to some degree, particularly by enforcing the eight-hour workday, which had been the subject of the massive strikes in the summer of 1917 though this success could just as easily be claimed by the IWW organizers and their years of agitation. 
4L wasn't governed by workers like a typical industrial union, and while there were no dues, participation was mandatory. Workers had to sign a pledge, it should be noted that many lumberjacks were functionally illiterate, that went like this. I, the undersigned, do hereby solemnly pledge my efforts during the war to the United States of America and will support and defend this country against enemies foreign and domestic. I further swear to faithfully perform my duty toward this company by directing my best efforts in every way possible to the production of logs and lumber for the construction of army airplanes and ships to be used against our common enemies. That I will stamp out any sedition or acts of hostility against the United States government which may come within my knowledge, and I will do every act and thing which will in general aid in carrying this war to a successful conclusion. The War Department officers who ran 4L and enforced the pledge weren't worried about agents of the German Kaiser or the Ottoman sultans sowing sedition in lumber camps. They were talking about wobblies and their hostility against the government. In any event, the men joined 4L, and I use joined very loosely given that they had no choice. Men who resisted the new order of the forests were beaten, tarred and feathered, deported, and imprisoned in conditions far worse than the logging camps. And so, the timber beasts worked, and they died, and they produced lumber for the American war machine. And for their efforts, they were greeted as rascals, layabouts, and traitors in the wake of a war in which they served without trappings and medals and pensions, with the sweat of their brow no less than any soldier. But the old prejudices remained even fiercer now with the jubilation of winning the war and the memory that the IWW had opposed it and had even mobilized workers to disrupt the war effort. The Wobblies were prepared to carry on as they had for years, setting up union halls and distributing propaganda and holding meetings and lectures. But the timber companies, now made even stronger after a huge injection of cash thanks to the war, were more powerful and determined than ever. Now was the time to annihilate the troublesome unionizers, using the forces of the state, mob violence, and terrorism to send the Wobblies and the loggers a clear message. Disrupt the order at your own peril. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There, you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time... <laughs>